Hello and welcome back to my History for Today book review series. Today I would like to tell you about Morton J. Horwitz, a Harvard professor of first law and then of legal history. And he published The Transformation of American Law, 1780 to 1860, in 1977. And it won the Bancroft Prize. Uh, this was one of the most consequential books that I read in my PhD studies at UMass, mostly because its conclusions were just the opposite of what I had been expecting from a Harvard law professor. So let me explain. Horowitz argued a fairly radical case, which probably didn't receive as wide of uh, public recognition as it should have, due to not only the subject matter, but also the style of the book. Law students and legal historians still read the book, uh, but I think its message deserves a much wider audience. Uh, Horowitz said, I seek to show that one of the crucial choices made during the antebellum period was to promote economic growth primarily through the legal, not the tax system a choice which had major consequences for the distribution of power and wealth in American society." End quote. Now, obviously, I'm interested in the distribution of power and wealth in American society, and I would uh, expand that description a little bit to suggest that Horowitz also implied that the changes were being made to the regulation of businesses not debated by legislatures, there wasn't really any representation of the people's voice, as one might expect in a representative democracy. Horowitz also had some interesting ideas about legal history itself, saying the internal technical life of a field generates autonomous forces that determine its history. We make a mistake, Horowitz is saying, if we fail to account for the activities and the interests of lawyers and judges and the legal profession and law schools, etc., when we're looking at how the law influenced history. The same could be said, I imagine, with equally interesting results for religion or medicine or even the study of history itself. But that's an aside. Uh, let's move on with Horowitz's argument. Horowitz focused on common law. Constitutional law, he said, represents episodic intervention, buttressed by a rhetorical tradition that is often an unreliable guide to the slower and often more unconscious processes of legal change in America. In other words, although they get more attention, Supreme Court decisions are not the way most of the change has been affected in our history. Constitutional law, of course, also focuses on judicial review rather than on what Horowitz characterized as a very active, constructive legislative role taken on by 19th century judges. By 1820, he said, the process of common law decision-making had taken on many of the qualities of legislation. As judges began to conceive of common law adjudication as a process of making and not merely discovering legal rules, they were led to frame uh, general doctrines based on a self-conscious consideration of social and economic policies. They knew that they were charting new territory and they were making it up as they went. 
the ancient tradition of a, an eternal set of principles expressed in custom and derived from natural law gave way to an understanding of law as an instrument of policy that could be used, as Horowitz said, for governing society and promoting socially desirable conduct. And once this change had been made, then the game, of course, becomes one of defining those two terms, socially desirable. The major examples that Horowitz uses to illustrate this change uh, surround the competing uses of water for mill power, irrigation, navigation, and fishing, which illustrate the problems inherent in what he calls a conception of ownership, including a commitment to absolute dominion. Ted Steinberg expanded on this theme in his 1989 dissertation, which was supervised by Horowitz and Donald Worcester and uh, David Hackett Fisher, which became the book Nature Incorporated, one of the classics of environmental history. There was a problem in a newly settled and rapidly expanding nation respecting the concept that first in time is first in right. And resources, natural uses, came to be seen as kind of the lowest common denominator that might block socially desirable improvements like the operation of mills. The problem was it was a Pandora's box. While it made sense to grant initial exclusivity to a developer, because how many grist mills does a new town need, Horwitz asked, can the claims of still greater efficiency through competition be denied? He didn't fully examine whether the greater efficiency that he was talking about ever really produced its claimed social benefits or even existed really other than as short-term paper gains. Uh, but maybe the people at the time didn't ask these questions either. The point is, by changing the rules and disguising the changes in the complexities of technical legal doctrine, the facade of economic security can be maintained even as new property is allowed to sweep away the old, Horowitz says. This is huge. And this is Horowitz's major point. The legal system, he said, was not only to change the rules of the game to benefit an increasingly elite class, but also to hide the fact that these changes were being made. This is a great and a very radical argument. What I think it needs to reach a wider audience is some people to show how it happened and how people reacted assuming that anyone on the short end of the transaction knew that it was happening at the time. This actually raises an interesting question. How do we tell the stories of things that we now see were happening in the past, but that at the people of the time were unaware of? Either because the evidence was hidden or because they just didn't see things the way we do now especially when people knew that something was wrong, but they couldn't quite put their finger on it. Or maybe they blamed the wrong parties, right? The story isn't always just about unintended consequences. Sometimes it's about misunderstood consequences. In any case, Horowitz says that the famous Massachusetts decision, Carrie v. Daniels, which was a landmark case regarding the use of rivers and is seen as a turning point in U.S. property law, was um, premised on the desirability of maximizing economic development, even at the cost of equal distribution. 
This opened the door for the courts to direct business toward their idea of the public good and enabled, as he says, common law judges to choose the direction of American economic development, at least when it came into contact with older legal ideas of property and equity. I wonder, again, how people at the time responded to these changes. And one place to look might be at what Horwitz calls the storm of bitter protest caused by the extension of the Mill Act to manufacturing establishments. Apparently, there were people at the time who saw through the similarities in the use of water power that the court was talking about from the old time grist mills and sawmills that had been almost communal in nature to the textile factories that were private businesses. Right? Manufacturing establishments were private institutions, he says. Citizens distrusted the law's provisions uh, for relief, also arguing generally the mills and mill seats are in the hands of the active and wealthy, able to make the sufferers repent if they resort to the law. One of the state's main economic development tools was eminent domain. But tied up with this idea, even at the time, was the idea of chartered monopolies and limited liability. A state grant is no good, said a commentator at the time, if the grantee cannot exercise it without being subject to ruinous damages so as to swell the cost of their enterprise beyond its ability to make a profit. Rather than examining whether these social costs really argued against businesses going forward, which would have been especially interesting for the 19th century in the case of things like railroads from the 1840s to the 1860s, Horwitz avoided that issue and said that the courts socialized what he called consequential damages, which enabled them to disqualify them under the legal justification that the law gives no private remedy for anything but private wrong. And he's quoting Blackstone there. Uh, so the costs were socialized, in economic terms, externalized, at the same time that the benefits were being privatized in the form of corporate profits. Horowitz didn't say much about the decision to do projects like canals and railroads in the private rather than in the public sector. But it would be interesting to understand how this choice had been made in America as well. Over the course of the 19th century, Horowitz said, the basic attitude toward legal liability became based on the assumption that the quiet citizen must keep out of the way of the exuberantly active one. He continued, uh, indeed, the law of negligence became a leading means by which the dynamic and growing forces in American society were able to challenge and ultimately overcome the weak. After 1840, the principle that one could not be held liable for socially useful activity exercised with due care became commonplace in American law. The effect of this change was to create immunities from legal liability and thereby to provide substantial subsidies to developers, Horowitz said. Change brought about through technical legal doctrine, he said, can more easily disguise underlying political choices than subsidy through the tax system. Bam, there it is. Horowitz said, there is reason to suppose that this was not simply an abstract effort 
to avoid political contention, but that it entailed more conscious decisions about who would bear the burdens of economic growth. This is a really interesting claim, which I'm inclined to believe, temperamentally. To convince the part of the world that's not predisposed to think this way, it needs to be backed up, I think, with some evidence that actual people made this decision at the time, consciously. A smoking gun of some sort would be very valuable. In every state after 1790, Horwitz said, a political decision to avoid promoting economic growth, primarily through taxing, seems to have crystallized. Shea's Rebellion and the Whiskey Rebellion probably helped that crystallization, as well as recognition that there really wasn't all that much money out there to get through taxing. Horwitz concluded, by 1800, a pattern of private ownership of banks, insurance companies, and transportation facilities had become dominant in America. Again, the question is why? Why do those things privately? Attributing the change in the definition of corporations from quasi-public institutions fulfilling public needs to private for-profit businesses, attributing this to an individualist spirit seems to put the cart before the horse. Since early corporations, in Horace's words, continued to argue both that their charters were grants of exclusive property interests and that economic rivalry was, in effect, a private law nuisance to property. This seems like a blatantly opportunistic attempt to have your cake and eat it too. The corporations were capitalizing on their status as something between public and private with the benefits of both. But the question again is, how did corporations get from this originally 18th century definition of a public body like a municipality working for the public good to the 19th century definition of a private company doing business to produce profit for its shareholders? Horowitz said, 18th century contract law was essentially antagonistic to the interests of the commercial classes because it tried to judge the underlying fairness or justice of the exchange in question. But ironically, the argument for judging contracts objectively on their terms was based on a claim that value was subjective and circumstantial. Promissory notes are the example of this. Promissory notes were used in place of cash, and in order to make notes negotiable, a subsequent endorsee must be allowed to recover on the note, regardless of the consideration between the original parties, Horwitz said. This removed any other terms or conditions from exchange, aside from price, because the other potential obligations couldn't be easily transferred. This same-as-cash nature of the note then enabled merchants to exclude the question of the equality of a bargain by transacting their business through promissory notes and excluded the courts from playing a role in judging the fairness of a transaction. The contract became an authority unto itself and was no longer seen as part of a tradition of dealings based on just prices or just practices. And actually, this is a missing link in the story of the market transition. Many historians assume that the change required only a move to a cash-based spot market. Horowitz is showing that a market could also be depersonalized and objectified even before it stops being based on longer-term credit relationships. Contract law changed the laborer's world 
through the doctrine of the assumption of risk, in which Horowitz says contract ideology emasculated all conceptions of substantive justice. Patricia Limerick would later have a lot to say about the assumption of risk in Western employment agreements between mine owners and workers. The fiction of equal bargaining power, Horowitz said, inevitably became established as the inarticulate major premise of all legal and economic analysis. The circle was completed. The law had come simply to ratify those forms of inequality that the market system produced. Actually, though, it's even worse than that. A free market might not have been able to produce all of this inequality if it had been truly free. The fact that some people had a leg up over their competitors and over their critics through the law probably had a lot to do with creating the results that we now imagine as having been inevitable. Returning to the issue of negotiable notes, Horowitz pointed out that common law not only established rules allowing subsequent innocent purchasers to collect on notes regardless of any defects in the original deal, but it allowed, quote, the legal system to sanction private arrangements whose effect was to increase the supply of money by allowing individuals to agree to substitute their own notes for currency designated by the state. This has interesting implications for the pace and distribution of economic development. After Andrew Jackson's specie circular, for example, currency was in short supply and in high demand. Growth would have been much slower and demand for state money creation would have been much more urgent if people like my upstate New York merchants that I studied had not been able to do business using promissory notes. But I wonder how much was the law making policy and how much was people making policy and the law trying to keep up with them. Who actually had the agency, I wonder? Who was in the driver's seat? Massachusetts Chief Justice Theophilus Parsons in 1808 said, the circulation of negotiable paper is extremely useful to trade as it multiplies commercial credit and the notes pass from man to man as cash. Any rule of law tending unnecessarily to suppress this circulation is therefore against public policy. So I think that's still an open question. Finally, Horowitz concluded by describing what he called the rise of legal formalism in the 1840s and 1850s. He said, if a flexible, instrumental conception of law was necessary to promote economic development, it was no longer needed once the major beneficiaries had obtained the bulk of their objectives. In fact, just the opposite. The law needed to become, and it needed to be seen as, quote, self-contained, apolitical, and inexorable, end quote, built on scientific logic and practiced by professionals. Having used it to get power, Horowitz said, the ruling class then used this legal formalism as a way of disguising and suppressing the inevitably political and redistributive functions of law. This is a startling conclusion, especially if the reader of this book came to it thinking about the law as having been apolitical or objective. Horowitz showed how an emerging elite used and changed the law to facilitate its own rise. Although, unfortunately, he left the names and faces out of the story. Horowitz believed that recent historians have been more concerned with finding evidence of governmental intervention than they were in asking in whose interest these regulations were forged. 
His book suggests who some of the targets of questions should be. It would be interesting to explore whether it can be proved that these people acted consciously and how they and society at large understood their actions at the time and the changes that resulted. I hope you found that interesting. That's all for now. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.